Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What with Dan and Julie. Today we've got Ed on, who is a tech lawyer. Hi, Ed. Hello there. How are we? We're good. We're um, yeah, we've had a busy day today, so I'm looking forward to some downtime this evening if that's possible. Yeah, be nice. Um, yeah. So, do you want to tell everyone a little bit about what you actually get up to, Ed? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a I'm a director and head of legal operations, which I'll explain at the moment, uh, at a law firm called Stevenson Law. Um, just to mention briefly a bit about Stevenson Law, uh, it's been around since 2017. It was founded by um, Alice Stevenson, um, and uh, if you if you do some googling about Alice Stevenson, you'll um, you'll be able to find out a bit about her. Um, but she's very active on Instagram and LinkedIn or, and, uh, and on uh, what else? Other channels as well. TikTok. She's very active on TikTok. And um, having trained and practiced at a number of big traditional law firms, she decided that she wanted to do something a bit different uh, because she didn't feel that those firms were necessarily providing an awesome experience to clients, but also culturally they weren't providing the most exciting and dynamic environment for lawyers to develop in. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fair to say, to say that Stevenson Law is a very different, uh, a different breed uh, to a lot of other law firms that are out there. Well, they're um, very active on social media, um, which is uncommon for, for law firms, I think. Yeah, I think, I think that there's um, a kind of um, perception that lawyers are all boring and clinical and, and don't have a soul. Is <laughs> Is, is is the common um, the thing, and uh, you know we we are trying to demonstrate that that's not the case. And our head of marketing, Jess, I mean her her job, as she would put it, is humanizing lawyers. Um, <laughs> and you know we, we we all have hoodies that have hashtag human lawyers on the back of them. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's um, I guess it's just trying to show people that lawyers are people too. Um, you know we've got thoughts, we've got feelings, we you know we care, we're real people. Um, and and contrary to popular belief, we're not just out there to uh, uh, you know to make a fast buck and um, and get away with doing you know, the minimum amount of work possible for that. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of a bit of bite Stevenson law. But what is tech law? Like, is it, obviously I assume that's related to something very specific in technology these days. But what it, what it, is that? Yeah, it, it it can be. So I mean. Um, Tech law um, is a discrete area of law because there are um, an emerging number of um, pieces of law which are directed specifically towards uh, the regulation of technology and technology companies. Um, So a technology lawyer will deal with things like um, uh, ownership of rights to software and how software is licensed. They'll advise online platforms and online retailers on rules around e-commerce and how they can do business legally online. Um, And uh, they'll also advise on some nitty gritty aspects of technology regulation like artificial intelligence and uh, the use of data and that kind of jazz. In in my case, tech lawyer is a bit of a broader label and it probably, um, I mean, I call myself a tech lawyer because most of my clients are tech companies um but i do quite a lot of different areas of law so i advise companies on raising money from investors on 
uh, giving share options to their employees so that they're incentivized to work hard um, and also advise on things like data protection and contracts and that kind of thing. So as, as, as a tech lawyer, I, I really do quite a lot of different um, things, but it's just easier to have that label rather than explain that to everybody every time. So are you guys to blame for when I download a new app or something and it says terms and conditions and you've got to scroll <laughs> all the way to the bottom before you can hit accept or something like that? Yeah, it's it's funny you should say that. Um, uh, last last night I was drafting or rather updating um, uh, an end user license agreement for a high-end speaker manufacturer. And in the process of doing that, I was just thinking, um, I'm glad that I'm enjoying this because I'm not sure that anybody else will. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, there is something in that, you know, um, ter terms and conditions are, are incredibly long and boring and typically the only people who read them are lawyers. Um, but they're, they're there to protect those companies against, um, against claims that might be brought by the users. So they serve a very important function, but they're, that you know they they are quite long and boring i think one of the one of the things that we try to do at stevenson law is is change that so we um you know we we try to avoid using legalese where possible um, nobody thanks us for it um <laughs> but we also try to be concise and to write things in a way that uh, achieves the desired objective without sending people to sleep um and and i would say that's one of our unique selling points so this whole world of uh, tech law um, yeah. is, is very young, um, I'd assume, um, and it's just growing and growing and growing. Have you, have you seen that industry grow in your time as a lawyer? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say, I would say tech law as, a, as an area of law has been around really since the early 1990s, probably with the advent of the internet. Um, you know, the, the, when, the, when the World Wide Web actually first um, first became a thing in the 1990s. Uh, there, there was this chap, this kind of libertarian in the States called John Perry Barlow. And he, he published this thing called the Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace. And it was very kind of um, uh, anarchical and countercultural. And it was like, look, the internet is here. It's here to uh, bring all sides of the planet together to, to, to democratize free speech, to do all of these things. And good luck if you're a lawyer or a court trying to regulate that, because this is an unregulated space and there's nothing you can do about it. But what we have seen over the past 20 or 30 years is, is a very gradual um, upending of that fundamental belief that uh, people like John Perry Barrow believed in. And instead, uh, you know, trying to say that you know, whatever is illegal um, or objectionable offline is also illegal and objectionable online. And as a result of that, we've ended up with this rather complex body of law, which we call tech law, um, that's designed to um, that's designed to keep online platforms and the people that use them in check. So it's it's definitely grown phenomenally over the past thirty years. And you would have you know you would have struggled maybe. Uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago to find a law firm that had a tech lawyer and, and now there are law firms that have entire um, uh, entire teams dedicated to it and, and, and you know we've built we've built a law firm around helping clients that are in that sector. 
Mm. And I guess this is only going to increase, right, with the advent of things like AI. And I'd imagine that's going to be incredibly complex to build law around. Yeah, the, the, the thing is that, you know, technology doesn't wait for the law. Um, you know, te- technology has barrier, barriers that it's constantly breaking through. And, and, you know, everybody used to talk about the law stifling innovation. But I think that what, what's been proved over the past decade is that actually very little gets in the way of innovation. You know, if you take Google, for example, um, unfortunately, they're not a client of mine, so I'm not going to get in trouble by saying this. But, you know, you, you, you can point at any number of things that um, Google has done that have um, not been not, not complied with the law and ended up with them getting fined and ending up in dispute and disputes with people. But their whole their whole outlook has been to kind of push ahead to, to drive innovation and it's kind of innovate first and then think about whether it's legal or not later. Um, and I'm not saying that that is the defining, you know, the defining characteristic of that particular business, but, um, you know, the, the, the technologies like artificial intelligence, um, you, you can't foresee all of the problems that's going to create when somebody's developing the technology. You only realize that when they, when they um, you know, um, emerge in public life. Um, and, and that's what we're seeing now. So what sort of formal education do you need to become a lawyer? And for you going through that education, at what sort of point did you decide, I'm quite interested in tech law and I'm going to branch towards that? Sure. Well, I think I, I, I slightly became a lawyer by accident, to be honest. Um, uh, I think I, I never really had um, a clear idea of what I wanted to do when I was in secondary school. Um, but I did really enjoy, um, I re- really did enjoy IT and coding and building websites and that kind of jazz. So when I had to pick six choices for my UCAS form, um, I put down three choices for multimedia design and three choices for law and law simply because I did a short course on it at A level and I thought, well, this is interesting. Um, and also because somebody I did work experience with in a web design agency said, um, only, only do this job if you're really creative and you really enjoy it because it's never going to pay well. Um, so <laughs> I picked three choices for law, three choices for multimedia design. Um, I literally put my hand into the bookcase of prospectuses and pulled one out for a particular university, um, stuck it on my UCAS form, and uh, and in the end, I decided to go with law. But the the legal profession has moved on quite a lot in the past few years. It used to be that, you know, they would expect you to have an undergraduate degree in law um, to begin with uh, because it shows a clear vocation. These days, that it's not that much of a deal. So you can you can do an undergraduate degree in pretty much anything, and then if you want to convert to law, you can do something called the Graduate Diploma in Law or the GDL, which takes a year and it's essentially three years of law school packed into one year. So it's pretty intense. Wow, that must be so intense. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've heard some people who have done it and said it's absolutely brutal. Um, And then uh, once you've done, whether you've done a law degree or you've done the GDL to convert from another undergraduate degree, you then have to do something called the legal practice course, which is incredibly expensive. It's like 12 to 15,000 pounds. 
to do that. Is that usually funded by a practice, uh, a company? It, it depends, really. So a lot of the big law firms will fund people to do their LPC uh, because the next step after you've got your LPC is to do a period. It used to be called a training contract, and law firms still do offer training contracts, but it's also now referred to as a period of recognised training because you can also do apprenticeships now. Um, and a lot of the big law firms would offer people training contracts maybe to, you know, two or three years ahead of their starting date and then fund them to do their LPC in between leaving university and starting the job. These days, it's a bit of a mix. You'll find that larger law firms still do that, um, but not every law firm does. And quite a lot of, um, quite a lot of trainee um, solicitors do self-fund the LPC through bank loans and that kind of thing. So what sort of age can you expect to be when you can call yourself a proper lawyer? Uh, so let's see, uh, I went to uni when I was 18. I did a four year, I did something called an exempting degree, which means that instead of doing a three year undergraduate law degree, which is called an LLB, and then doing a one year LPC, I could do them at the same time. Um, the university I went to, Northumbria, was the first in the country to do it. That must have been intense, um, doing it at well, the same time. It was, but it also made a lot of sense because the LPC is about the practice of law, where, whereas a law degree is about the theory. Right. Um, and by doing an exempting degree for four years, I could do the theory and the practice at the same time. Uh, and then the really great thing about, um, about the course at Northumbria is that they had something called the Student Law Office, which was pretty much a fully-fledged um, law firm, all of the lecturers were practicing solicitors, and we, we provided pro bono legal advice to the, to the community in Newcastle, and part of our final year assessment was based on how well we did at, um, at, uh, at you know, advising clients through the student law office. So it was, it, it was and it is still a very pioneering um, uh, program, but uh, yeah, so by the time I by the time I graduated, I would have been uh, twenty three, uh, and then, um, but that when I gra- when I graduated, it was the, at the height of the credit crunch, so it wasn't really the best time to get. Oh God! <laughs> uh, so I ended up really randomly falling into working um, at an NHS trust in Newcastle in their research unit. Um, doing uh, advising um, uh, doctors on the regulation around doing clinical trials. I knew absolutely nothing about it, so I had to learn it all on the job. Wow. And I did that for about a year and then moved down to Bristol with my wife, who I met at uni, and did a similar role uh, in the NHS in, uh, down here in Bristol, um, negotiating clinical trials contracts with pharma companies. And then I started training and my training contract was two years. So I qualified in 2010. Um, and yeah, so I've been, I've been at this now for a decade, which is quite frightening. Wow. And so was, at what point did you sort of go, I really loved tech when I was younger, building websites and doing some coding to be able to implement that in your law um, career? It was it was an active decision. Um, I mean, I when I was at university, I took an interest in the law as it related to technology, and um, I was quite fortunate in that we had a senior lecturer um, at the university who shared my 
shared my interest in that. So I decided to do my final year dissertation on, um, on libel and the internet uh, because the law was still developing around whether people could get away with um, saying things about people online that wasn't true um, and who would be liable for that. Mm. So I find that really interesting. And then when I started my training contract, my very first, uh, so when, when you do a training contract, they talk about you doing SATES, which is basically a stint of time in different departments. <clears throat> and for the first seven or eight months of my training contract, I was doing family law. And I actually did enjoy it, but it wasn't really, it wasn't really me. And mm -hmm. then I got stuck into commercial stuff. So advising on contracts and that kind of thing. And there were a couple of clients that I happened to work with that were technology companies. And I just thought, you know, this is, this is really interesting. I think this is the stuff I would want to be doing. If I'm going to be doing this stuff day in, day out, it might, may as well be in an industry and for the type of client that I find really interesting. Mm. Um, and then one day after a few years of being uh, a qualified um, solicitor, I, I said to the firm, I'd quite like to start a proper technology practice. And they said, okay, you can do that. And, um, and so I became the head of technology. Wow, um, that's, that's a pretty cool, you sort of got stuck in straight away, really. Yeah, I did. I sort of thought, well, you know, this your career your, your career is really what you make it. Um, yeah. And uh, and you know, the, the firm that I was at didn't really have any experience in acting for these clients, and and I felt that you know I understand what well. First of all, it helped that I understood what the clients were actually saying when they talked about code bases and APIs and all of that kind of thing. Mm. Um, but. Uh, you know, they, they, there were other areas that they were focusing on, like food, drink and hospitality and um, uh, real estate and development. And I thought, well, why not digital media and technology? Um, so I was really fortunate in that the firm that I that, that I um, qualified into was really open to, you know, anybody with initiative um, and, you know, and, and a passion for something to, to kind of pursue that. So when you were talking about your time at university and you'd um, this law students would offer pro bono advice to people in the community, yeah. um, is that quite common in universities? Do a lot of them have them? Because we had somebody called um, Professor Chris Newman on um, and he chatted about space law and he mentioned oh, a very yeah. similar thing. Um, and I think he's at Newcastle University, actually. Think, yeah. So I think Northumbria has a specialist and um, has a specialism in uh, in space law. Yeah. Uh, so it might be that he's he's from Northumbria. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's a it's a lot more common now than it used to be. I, I I can't say for sure whether Northumbria University was the first to have a student law clinic. I'm sure it wasn't. Um, you get quite a lot of law firms in London. Uh, sorry, not law firms, universities in London uh, that have clinics. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean they. The big thing at Northumbria was the work that they did around criminal appeals. There were a few people who had been falsely imprisoned for things and they managed to overturn their convictions. Oh, wow. Pretty, pretty amazing stuff. And um, the stuff that I did was more on the employment side. So, you know, em employees that were hard done by by their employers and they just didn't know where to turn to get advice. Mm. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it, actually. And uh, 
one, one of the things you realize when you start practicing law is a, that a lot of what you actually learn in law school, it's a useful theoretical grounding, but it's nothing more than that. You know, you, yeah. can't, you, you can't go from being a law student to being a lawyer. It, it's just, um, uh, they almost don't really bear any uh, any reflection of, of each other, you know? Um, with, with law um, and working in a firm, I've heard it with some jobs, and it, it may be the same with this. That a law firm would quite oh, a firm would it like to teach its newer employees how to do it sort of their way? Yeah. So I think um, I think every law firm has an approach to things which is on a spectrum of of kind of um, appetite for risk. And that appetite for risk is largely dictated by the kind of clients that they have. So, you know, if you talk about what, what are often referred to as the magic circle law firms in London, um, which is the, the kind of the largest law firms in the UK, um, you know, their clients are massive hedge funds and banks and governments and, you know, global companies. Clearly, they have to ratchet the, the, their approach to the risk appetite of those clients, which means that, you know, um, uh, you know, crossing every T, dotting every I, accounting for every uh, possibility, and and making sure that everybody everybody in the team is is you know absolutely on the ball and nothing gets missed. So, you know, pe people who train at those types of firms will be trained to think and act and and approach things in a particular way for sure, um, uh, and. At Stevenson Law, we certainly have a similar approach, but it's not it's not quite the same. We 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 almost in some ways have to deprogram um, some of the lawyers that join us so that they kind of put to one side that really technical and academic view on what they're doing and think more about the needs of our clients and the way that they want advice to be provided. Um, and, and that means, you know, let letting go of some of the complexity of thinking. And letting go of um, some of the formality uh, of drafting, and and just to be more straightforward. Mm. And I, I guess for me, when I think about uh, being a lawyer, a lot of time is spent in the office, and a lot of time researching law and cases. But and what reading. is yeah, re a lot of reading. But what is a an actual a day like for a lawyer? What are you doing? Ah, well, um, <laughs> they kind of do you want to take the red pill or the blue pill? Um, <laughs> yeah, so actually, un unless, you're, un unless you're in a regulatory area of law, like financial services, or you work in disputes, um, you very rarely read it, you, you very rarely read case law, and you very rarely read pieces of law. And most of what you're doing is is framing the intention of parties within a contractual document um, and, and helping parties to manage risk and to achieve their commercial objectives. So, I mean, my, my day today has been a mix of, um, uh, so I was speaking to one client today that's launching a health tech product in the next few months, and they want to understand what the risk is of handling patient data. Uh, and what process they need to take to make sure that their product protects patient data in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. uh, then I had a call later in the day with um, with someone 
who uh, wanted a bit of advice around whether or not they could send emails to um, a bunch of people that they had never met before, whether or not that was legal. Um, and then throughout the day, I've been dipping in and out of, of a deal that we're doing to help uh, some people to sell their company, uh, which is which is hopefully going to complete tomorrow. Oh, wow. uh, so it's a lot of you know negotiating uh, terms terms of the agreement and making sure that all of the numbers and figures are correct. You sort of um, stumbled a little bit on it there, and I know it's a topic that's growing more and more recently of data protection. How how is that from sort of an insider's perspective? What is sort of happening there? Um, well, I think that um, I think that as as a society, people are becoming more alive to the ways in which organisations are using their personal data for their for their to, to meet their commercial objectives. Now, some people are completely cool with that. Some people are like, you know, uh, I've got nothing to hide, um, so you know, bring it on. It's fine. Some people are also quite happy to give away their personal data if there's something in it for them. Um, but there, I'm not going to go as far as to say there is a majority of people, but there is a growing number of people who are quite concerned about the ways in which companies are making their fortunes uh, by exploiting their data in ways that they don't really know or understand. And uh, particularly over the past decade or so, so we, we, we have this, you might have heard of something called GDPR, yeah. uh, which was a bit of a shakeup in the world of data protection. It was a piece of European law that came into force a couple of years ago. And, and it was it, it kind of up the ante a bit, both in terms of what companies needed to do to comply with the rules, but also what would happen if they got it wrong. So a company that um, breaches the GDPR uh, can in theory be fined 4% of their global turnover or up to 20 million euros. Wow. So the consequences of getting this stuff wrong are a lot more severe than they used to be. And certainly we're doing more data protection work now than, um, well, I've done more data protection work in the past four or five years than, than I had done at any time before. I think we, uh, certainly our generation, Jules, I think you'll agree, we are always on our phones, always on sort of things like social media and online shopping. And the thing that I find weird with the whole data thing is I know we probably give away our you know, consent for them to track us and stuff. But when we're shopping or you've been talking about a certain subject and then an advert for that product pops up, it is a bit odd. And I think people are now starting to think, oh, actually, where is where's my data going? Yeah, I think, I think that I think that's right. And, and actually, the whole ad tech industry has been square. Well, was at least for a period of time. Um, squarely within the sights of the of the UK regulator, because there is this sense that um, that the monetization of people's online behaviours uh, through advertising is really opaque, and nobody really knows how it works, um, or how landing on webs one website can can result in in you receiving um, ads for that website's products when you go somewhere else. So it is it, it is a hugely complicated machine that. Um, that even people within the industry, I think, struggle to explain in really simplistic terms. And, and I always say to clients as a rule of thumb, if your, client, if your customers would be surprised by what you've done with their data, then something's gone wrong. And it means that you're either doing something unfair or illegal, or you've just been, you know, you've been really opaque about it. 
So I, I do think that online advertising is, is an area that's kind of ripe for change, but at the same time, there are now new technologies coming onto the scene that mean that um, you can still receive personalized advertising, but without any of the companies knowing exactly who you are as an individual. So, you know, that, that kind of thing is going to be a real game changer, I think. And so what are some of the personality traits that you see in yourself that you think have really helped you get to where you are? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I always like, I would always like to have more time for self-reflection than I really have, but it's quite a busy job and you don't always get the time to, to do that. Um, I think that you've got to, you've got to be pretty thick skinned um, uh, because, you know, lawyers are a particular breed. They, you know, they, I think I say they, we um, are, are people that, you know, we, we, we like to get things right. We, you know, it's important that, um, it's important that things are done properly and that they address things accurately. What that means is that, you know, sometimes you'll be working with uh, lawyers on a deal or, 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 or a project and, you know, they can be, they can be quite direct in, in the way that they speak and, uh, and they don't mean anything by it. But I think that if you're not thick skinned, then, you know, that's something that some people might find quite challenging. Um, attention to detail is absolutely crucial. Um, you know, you have. I think um, anybody who works with me will, with me will know that um, I'm quite fastidious about things. Um, uh, it probably annoys some people, but you know, I am who I am. So, yeah, and you've you've got to be surely when you're doing law. You know, it's all in the detail, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah, it's, it, it, well, it's all in the detail, but it's also being able to see the big picture. And one of the one of the criticisms that's often leveled against lawyers is that they're too, they're, they're so focused on on the technical detail of what they're doing that they that they can't see the bigger picture. I think I think that's something that um, I, I am good at. Um, I think you know having a good grounding in the technology that clients are using and the sector that they operate in means that I can ask questions which go beyond you know um ticking boxes to find out whether or not they're compliant or what they're doing is legal it's more about understanding strategically is this going to help my client get from where they are to where they want to be Mm. and then i guess for you what are some of the biggest positives um, of working as a lawyer um, well, I think that's going, I mean, that will vary from lawyer to lawyer. I think people who typically become lawyers are people who um, enjoy a challenge. Um, I would say I'm, I'm challenged on an hourly basis in, in, in my job. You know, there's, 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 very, there's very rarely such a thing as a simple piece of work um, because what clients are doing and the way they're doing it is always just a little bit different. Um, and and that texture is what makes the job interesting, I think. it's. Um, uh, so I would say that the technical challenge is one thing. I think also, you know, if you're somebody who, um, uh, who, takes, who, who takes pleasure in being able to help somebody achieve something, you know, you, you do get quite a lot of that. Now, okay, granted, I'm not, you know, I'm not <laughs> advising people on human rights abuses and that type of mm-hmm. thing. Um, but you know, when, when a client asks you to, to, to help them to raise investment, for example, and, uh, and you get to the point where the deal is done and the money's landed in their bank account and, 
um, you know, they're grateful for, they're grateful to you for having helped them to get to that point. You know, that is enjoyable. Um, and quite a lot of lawyers that advise on transactional work like that, I think, get a real kick out of helping clients to get deals over the line. And what would be some of the uh, the less favorable aspects you've you've dealt with in this industry? Uh, less enjoyable. Um, well, like every job, it has its ups and downs. I think, uh, I think you know, mo- most people who go into law expect that it's going to be a lot of hard work, and it really is. I mean, you know, um, I know there's a lot of jokes that are made about how much lawyers bill for what they do, but <laughs> you know that. The commodity, I guess, the commodities in the legal industry are still is is still you know at least for now it might change with with um, technology, but at least for now it's still it's still time and expertise, and and acquiring that expertise takes time because it's not just what you learn from books it's what you learn from doing it day in day out, um, uh, so uh, you know it's um, it is hard work, uh, there are long hours. Um, it, it depends on which firm you go to, of course, and at Stevenson Law, we certainly don't encourage people to, you know, we don't base people and expect them to work uh, 12 hours a day. Um, but there are, you know, there are long days and and trying to trying to ensure that you're doing the best possible job that you can do for every client at the same time is not easy. You know, it's um, uh, clients have strict deadlines. Um, they typically will come to you quite late in the day when it's become really urgent for them. And, you know, you've got to be able to manage your time in a way that means that you can keep all of your clients happy and do a really good job. And that is not as easy as it sounds. I think there is still the perception of lawyers of basically never leaving the office um, and, you know, getting paid quite a lot of money, but not having any time to actually go out and spend it. Um, Do you think that is changing in the industry? Um, it's probably not changing quickly enough. Mm. I think that, I think that in time with, so there's, if anybody's listening to this and wants to kind of get a really interesting perspective on where the legal profession is going, and um, there's a really good book I can recommend called The Future of the Professions. It's by, um, it's by a father and son, um, uh, called uh, Richard and Daniel Suskind, and it looks at how technology is changing the face of not only the legal profession, but any other profession that's based on expertise. Um, and they, the kind of the overall thesis of that book is that in time with automation and artificial intelligence and all of these types of things, the need for lawyers to do what they're currently doing in the way they're currently doing it is going to decline. So with that, working practices will change, working days will change, and we could see quite some significant shifts over the past decade and in, in, you know what a lawyer's typical day looks like for now though you know you do still hear stories of of, of lawyers pulling all-nighters and not sleeping for two or three days straight um, I would say that overall that is that that is or rather should be the exception rather than the rule in terms of what lawyers are paid and um, there are some people who will go into the legal profession because it is well, pay, well paid and that, that is what motivates them. I personally don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, 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 not at all. Uh, you know, but um, what I would say is that when you look, when, when you actually see day in, day out, um, what 
what lawyers do and what is expected of them. Um, they're not paid unfairly, certainly not relative to um, some other um, jobs that, that are out there. I think that um, I think that most lawyers more than earn the money they're paid. We actually, we always ask sort of um, our guests, we put some data to you, some average income data that we go away and research for for the positions and the careers. And for lawyers, um, we seem to come to the conclusion that for a starting lawyer, it could be um, anything between 30 to 35. And then an average salary for a lawyer, apparently in the UK is around £50,000. Does that sound right to you? But I'm sure you're going to say it completely varies which law you study. Yeah, I mean, I would say study. I would say on an average basis, that probably sounds around, that sounds about right. But, um, right. you know, if, if you were to train at a, at a law firm in the city of London, uh, as a trainee solicitor, your first year salary can be anywhere between 35 and 40,000. Mm-hmm. And on qualification, typically 60 to 70,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um in, in the regions, it's obviously less. And a lot of large London law firms do have regional offices for that reason, because it means that they can give their clients a spread of fees um, so they can get certain types of work done less expensively than having lawyers in London doing it. Mm. And then, of course, there's a whole, you know, 80% of the legal profession is made up of firms of less than maybe 25 people. It's, it's really, it's that whole 80-20 rule, you know, um, there, there's a, a US law firm that has a London office, and since they opened their London office, they have really, uh, I mean, they pay their newly qualified lawyers something like 140000 a year. Um, newly qualified lawyers? Wow, that is a, wow, I went into the wrong industry. <laughs> absolutely bonkers, if you ask me. Yeah. But, what that's done is meant that all of the other US law firms in London have had to match. And because all of the US law firms in London, of which there are an increasing number, are paying these salaries, the, the UK uh, native big law firms are now having to pay those types of salaries just to keep up and not lose their best talent to these, to these other law firms. So at a particular level of the industry, the money is stupendous. Maybe they got the exchange rate wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they must have done. I mean, yeah, I don't even know if they're charging US law firm rates in the UK or not, but they'd have to be to make that pay. Wow. Um, so you, you were talking a little bit before about um, reading a book and suggesting a book about the future of um, tech in law. Yeah. Um, and over the next decade, you sort of think it's going to change a lot. What would the... Um, the tech actually change to a lawyer's day would it remove the need to do a lot of research or how's it going to affect it yeah so um uh, the legal tech has actually become a huge area uh, of tech generally um and the uk i would say is one of the powerhouses of legal tech um in fact quite a lot of quite, quite a number of our clients are in that space there i mean the there are quite a lot of manual tasks traditionally involved with being a lawyer, and a lot of those tasks can be automated. Um, the, you know, document automation, for example, means that instead of taking a Word document and manually running through it and changing things, you can fill out a form, select a number of options, push a button, and get a first draft in a fraction of the time. So that saves a lot of time. Um, as as a commercial lawyer, I've certainly spent a huge amount of time reviewing contracts for clients and telling them what the risks are. Uh, we, we use a technology at Stevenson Law where we can upload a contract, 
we can create a questionnaire based on what answers we would be looking, what questions we would ask ourselves as lawyers, push a button and machine learning uh, basically applies those questions to the contract and finds all of the answers for us. Wow. And then we can, we can validate whether those answers are true or false. And the process of that validation improves the machine learning algorithm. So the next time you, you review that kind of contract, it's even more accurate. Wow. Um, that must save you so much time. Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, it, 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 just to give you a, an idea, sort of an average contract, you could probably spend three hours doing a contract review. Wow. And with this kind of technology, you can get it down to half an hour. Oh, my God, that's mad. Um, so it's um, technology is making a huge difference to the way that we work and also the way that we interact with our with our clients. I mean, particularly with our clients being tech clients, they don't want us to email them anything. So, you know, we're, we're, we're working with them on Slack, on WhatsApp, you know, um, the way that we manage a lot of stuff is, is using Kanban boards that we share with our clients so that they can see what we're doing in a, at any point in time. So, yeah, I mean, it's um, the way technology is changing the, the profession is quite exciting, I think. Sorry, did you say they don't want you to email? No, they don't like email. Like tech tech company tech companies hate email. Okay, okay. Didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, they just yeah they just find it really annoying. You know, having to sift through an inbox and open attachments and that kind of thing. I mean, they're all kind of living Google. Um, you know, Google's G Suite. Um, yeah, I guess it is quite um, old fashioned now. I guess fax them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I do think email is on its way out. I'd yeah. be quite happy to see the back of email. Um, it's, um, and, and, you know, the thing about Slack as well is that, you know, because of the nature of the channel, it's slightly less formal. So you save a lot of time topping and, ta you know, topping and tailing your emails with, you know, dear so-and-so and kind yeah. regards. Instead, it's just, Ed, I've got a question for you, and then you reply, and that's that. So it's it's actually a lot more efficient. Yeah. Um, and well, from my point of view as well, I, I used to work um, in the insurance industry in the city and that was uh, undergoing change massively with InsurerTech. Um, and it, it's quite, it's still quite an outdated industry in my eyes, but all of the industries, you, you know, the service industries in the financial world or law or whatever are all going through this change at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They are. I mean, you know, um, yeah, we've got reg tech, insured tech, prop tech, fintech, legal tech. Um, I mean, the funny, the funny thing, th those labels I think are quite funny, and um, because they they're designed to kind of um, indicate that this technology is aimed at disrupting a particular industry. So, you know, let's call it legal tech because le the legal industry is ripe for disruption and change, and technology is going to do it. But I, I can just see in maybe five, 10 years time, um, everything will just go back to being tech. Law will be law, accountancy will be accountancy, insurance will be insurance, and the technology will almost become invisible, an invisible part of that process. It will become the baseline rather than the disruption. Yeah, absolutely. It's like when I still hear people call smartphones, smartphones. It's, like, it's just a phone yeah. these days, guys. <laughs> like I, I remember when you know new media was a thing. Yeah. Um, and everybody was talking about new media and, and uh, graphic design existed before new media and now graphic design 
is a new media are kind of you know the same thing because yeah. it's about the medium and the delivery um and and that's all just kind of generally accepted now so what would be something that's uh, not in the job description that you never expected going into this this world of law? Huh, well, uh, there's a lot of admin. Like, I think, you, you know, you, you tend to think that you're going to be spending your days um, with your head down doing really interesting, complex legal stuff all day long. But actually, there's a lot of admin and a lot of management stuff. Um, I mean, it's slightly different for me because I'm a director uh, of a law firm, so you would expect me to do more management stuff. But, you know, if you work for a regulated law firm, there's a lot of um, compliance rules. So, you know, you've got to constantly assess risk on matters. You've got to take records and notes of things. All of that stuff is kind of um, hidden from you, I think, when you're thinking about a career in law. Um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of admin. And how would uh, someone progress in this this industry? What would you recommend for anyone up and coming um, to do? Uh, yeah, so I mean, in, in terms of how you progress when you're in the in the role, um, law you know, law firms tend to have very clearly defined career progression frameworks, um, and you know, there, there's this uh, term in the legal profession which is lockstep career progression, which means that. You know, the longer the, the longer you're in the job, and which is, you know, proportional to your hourly rate and how much you're billing every year. The, the longer you're doing that, the more you learn over time. Um, and if you hit certain objectives and do certain things, you can progress from being. It varies from one law firm to the next, but you know, you go from being a, a trainee solicitor to a qualified solicitor and then associate, senior associate, managing associate, uh, salaried um, partner, equity partner. Um, there's quite a lot of rungs on the ladder that you can progress through if, if, if that's what you want to do and that's the type of firm that you work for. Um, but um, it definitely still is a meritocratic profession. So the more you can demonstrate that you are um, contributing to the development of the business, while also, you know, doing the work to a high standard, they, the more likely you are to progress. And uh, would you still go into this industry knowing everything you know now? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how fair that is to ask me <laughs> at this stage of my career. I think, um, I, I think it's, it's, it's hard to say because everything is a matter of perspective. Mm. My perspective on it is that I know which parts of the job interest me and, and keep me going and which parts don't. And, and for the time being, there's more about the job than I like than I don't like. Um, and, and for that reason, it's, it's a profession that I'm likely to stay in for you know, a long time. Um, but I think, that, I think that there is a, and this isn't really helped by, by sexy US TV dramas. But, <laughs> Um, it's, it is, a, it is tough, you know, it's, it, it's not, you know, you, there's this idea that if you're, if you're studious and, um, and, and hardworking, that's enough to kind of be successful in the profession, but there's a lot more to it than that. And I think that if, if I knew then what I knew now, um, 
I I probably would have ended up going down the uh, the multimedia design type route. Um, but at the same time, I think that my career to date has been really fulfilling and I've enjoyed a lot of it. So, you know, I guess I don't have any regrets on that basis. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on, Ed. I've, I found it really, really interesting. Yeah, thank you so much. I always find it so enjoyable hearing about lawyers. For some reason, I'm so entranced about what they do. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's quite funny. I had an exchange with some people on Twitter last week where they where, where somebody said, um, here's me trying to convince my work experience student that what I do is interesting. <laughs> and, and and the thing is that like I've I've supervised work experience students before. And um, you know, you, you, you kind of have them sitting next to you and then the phone rings and you have a call with a client and and you know they're listening to what you're saying. Um and then you turn to your computer and you reply to an email and then you draft a contract. And it is really hard to make that look interesting. Mm. Um, but in, unless you're doing it and, and unless you understand the context in which you're doing it, and unless you've studied to get to that point, it's, it is very hard to convey it. But I would say that, um, you know, it is, it is an interesting job. The work is interesting and, the types of companies and, uh, and people that you get to work with are are really great brilliant well thank you again ed for coming on we really appreciate it yeah no worries thank you for having me thank you cheers cheers, cheers. Ed. bye-bye